And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad that you could be here. Uh, once again, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel. And we've been in a series that we've called Big Questions. This has been a series where we have been examining questions that trouble us, questions that, have, that keep us from following our faith, from, from taking it too seriously, from making us even going as far as making us wanting to turn away from our faith. We're in part six of this series. In fact, we've only got one left after this week. We're just about done because who knows what's coming? Who's, what's around the corner? Christmas! Advent! I'm excited. I love Christmas. I love Advent. This is, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year, as they say. But um, I'm excited for that. But I am really excited for what we're looking at today. I think this is an important question. I think this is one that a lot of us have struggled with, and I'm excited for it. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us today. Pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, that you would prepare us, that we would be listening, that the seed of this word would get planted deep inside us and would bring a crop 30, 60, 100-fold, God. Lord, we pray that this would make us into better followers of you. In your name we pray. Amen. So our question this week, spoiled by what's on the screen behind me, I'm sure, if Christianity is true... Why does it seem like Christians don't live any differently? And this is a pretty intuitive question for us to be asking. We do this all the time. Thank God that we seem to be done with the construction on the street right outside of here. But, like, imagine if someone came and said to the city that they had a system for road construction that would take half as long and it would cost half as much and that the roads would last twice as long as what we're doing right now. And then imagine that the city went for it and they started using this system all over the city. For sure, for a little while, there would be some controversy as the pundits and the armchair mayors debated back and forth as to whether this was a pipe dream or a genius new direction for the city and their terrible road woes. Say that three times fast. But in a few years, there wouldn't be any debate at all. Right? We wouldn't be arguing at all over whether or not it had worked. We would all know, and the evidence would be under our tires. In the same way, we can find ourselves asking this question about our Christian faith. If God has really spoken, if this is really real, if the Spirit is really at work, if we've really received power from on high, then why does it feel like our metaphorical roads are still full of potholes? right? Why aren't the lost flooding through the doors and falling at the feet of Christ? Why aren't Christians glowing with the presence of God and turning the world upside down? And I think that's probably what hurts the most in this question, because every time we fall short of the incredible witness that we know we're supposed to present, we feel that failure deeply. But never mind the impact on the wider world, what about God's power to change lives right here? We read verses in the Bible like 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We read passages like that, and we think to ourselves, why is this still a struggle? For so many, it feels like being a Christian doesn't seem to have any impact at all. The divorce rate among Christians is about the same as it is in the culture around us. 
Pornography use is lower in the church, but it's basically 100% outside the church, so that's not saying a whole lot. It's still somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters. I'm sure we can all think of a person who is angry, cranky, and mean, and yet who claims to have been following Christ for decades. And on the flip side, it seems that we regularly meet people and we think, wow, what a great person. They're so kind and thoughtful and good. They'd be an incredible testimony to the power of God in a life if only we could get them to accept Jesus. We look at these questions and we wonder, maybe this isn't true after all. Maybe God hasn't spoken. Maybe the Spirit hasn't indwelt us. And what's worse, not only do we look at these ways in which Christians regularly fall short, but we also see ways in which Christians have committed great harm and even done so expressly in pursuit of Christian goals. Probably the most current example is the horrors of the Canadian residential school system. Crusades, inquisitions, conversions forced at the tip of a spear, Christians have committed great evil across history. Worse then than asking if Christianity is true, why don't Christians live differently, would be asking, if Christianity is true, why do Christians commit evil? And it's also a good question. I hope, though, that you can see how the messages of this series are layering on one another. Obviously, this question bears a whole lot in common with our message two weeks ago on the problem of evil. And if you missed that message, I really encourage you to go check it out on YouTube. I I think it's important. I'm sure you'll find much of that message helpful to these questions today, but today I want to approach it from an angle a bit more specific to what we're asking today. So first, let's make sure that we're framing the question correctly. Christianity teaches that humans are sinful and fallen, and that Christians, though on that road, are not perfect. The Bible contains many examples of the depravity of humans, from simple failure to obey God, as in the Garden of Eden, to the first murder only one chapter later, didn't take long, to child sacrifice and adultery. The Bible has all kinds of examples. And it must be noted here that not everything in the Bible is instructive. Sometimes the Bible records what happened without it being something that we're supposed to emulate. And sometimes we have to argue over which one it is. The idea, though, that humans are broken and evil should not be a controversial statement. So let's remember, to be a Christian is not a claim to moral superiority. We are not Christians because we are somehow better than others. If anything, we are Christians because we acknowledge just how broken we are and just how far we fall short. What's more, Christianity makes no claim that by becoming Christians we should, in fact, immediately become superior in any way. We certainly hope to grow, to become more mature, to achieve a greater level of moral living, but it's not an instant or even really a guaranteed thing. Christianity has traditionally spoken of salvation in stages. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are the stages that this usually gets talked about. Justification means to be declared righteous, 
This is what we are usually referring to when we talk about getting saved. It is that moment of putting your trust in Christ, of throwing yourself upon the mercy of God and being caught in open, eternal, loving arms. When God catches you as you leap and he whispers, you are loved, you are mine. And we can rightly refer to justification as an event. It is something that occurs in the moment when you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You might call this the past portion of salvation, right? This is something that has happened. And this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which we read earlier. This is the old passing away and the new creation being born. Glorification, on the other hand, is the future tense form of salvation. It is what happens to us when we graduate into God's presence, when we see Him as He truly is, when the veil is lifted from our eyes and we are made perfect in His sight. It happens when we die if we are trusting in Christ, which means no one sitting in this room or listening online has been glorified. It's something yet to happen for each one of us. We may know people who have been glorified, but we probably haven't interacted with them since. Right? Safe assumption? Sanctification, then, is the present tense form of salvation. It is what is currently occurring. To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be more like Jesus. And this is not an event. This is a process. And this is what we are talking about when we ask why Christians don't live differently. We're asking, why aren't Christians sanctified? Or, recognizing that it's a process and not something that we can reasonably expect to complete, maybe we should ask, why aren't Christians at least noticeably more sanctified than the supposedly lost people around them? And unfortunately, this isn't really a question that we can answer for anyone but ourselves. It may well be that you look at a person who claims to love Jesus and think to yourself, what a truly unpleasant human being. And that may be. But we have no idea what that person would be like without Jesus. Maybe this grouchy person is actually a vast improvement. We don't know. What we do know is ourselves. And when we, as people of faith, find ourselves up against this question, we can look to our own lives and think about the ways in which it would be different if we didn't know Jesus. There are obvious things, like you wouldn't be part of this church, and you would be missing many of the relationships that you now have as a result, that sort of thing. But if you think about your own spiritual battles, think about the sin that tempts you, that you have to fight off most hours, never mind most days, and think about what your life would be like if you just gave in to that sin. This isn't going to be a compelling argument for someone who comes to you with this question. They can't see your inner life. They can't compare who you used to be to who you are now. But you can. This will help you as you struggle and wrestle. And that's important. It's not all about helping others. Sometimes we need to be helped too. And that's okay. That's good. Let's talk some more, though, about sanctification and what it means to be more like Jesus. 
The Bible speaks of this in many places, but let's go with this one just, just to start. In 2 Peter 3.18, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow. This is a process. We grow in grace. We grow in knowledge. Similarly, think about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit isn't something that happens instantly. It grows over time. And it's not guaranteed. We had a big garden this summer. I think I mentioned it to many of you. We'd planted watermelon and cantaloupe and strawberries, and it did not turn out. (laughs) We got some stuff, and we learned some important lessons for next year. Uh, I should say, please don't come give me gardening tips. This is Danielle's area. This is, this is her turf. She's the one you want. It will go in one ear and out the other if you try to give them to me. But thank you. Growth is not guaranteed. In fact, the Bible makes it pretty clear that we have a role to play in our own growth and that if we neglect that role, we won't get the growth. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's a nice, encouraging verse, but think about the flip side of that. If you don't walk by the Spirit, you will gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul expresses this in Philippians 3, 10 to 14. Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Notice all the action words. Knowing isn't much of an action, but attaining, pressing on, straining. Paul is very clear that he has an important role to play in his sanctification. This seems like a good time for an illustration. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not in great shape. It's okay, you can laugh. We're in the make fun of Graham part of the sermon. Now, it is a great mystery as to why I am not in shape. I have a weight bench. It's set up in my basement in a visible and accessible spot. It's not hidden away somewhere. I have dumbbells and weights. I have a punching bag that I have hung from the joists in my basement ceiling. I've got boxing gloves to use with it. So why am I not in shape? Do you think maybe it has something to do with the fine layer of dust on all of those things? Right? So let's relate that to the Bible's words on our sanctification. We noticed that Paul used a lot of action words, but the thing about action words is that you have to actually do them. Otherwise, you don't get the result. If you don't hit the bag, you don't shed the weight. If you don't press on toward the goal, you don't win the prize. Let's recap quickly. We're not done, but I want to catch us up. If Christianity is true, why don't Christians seem to live any differently? First, humans are broken by sin, and Christianity doesn't claim to be a quick fix for that. Second, Jesus has made a big difference in our lives, and we know it even if we can't show or articulate it to those around us. Third, 
Becoming more like Jesus is an active process that we have to engage with, and many simply don't. Not only do we need to push toward God and actively engage with the process of sanctification, but we face tremendous pressure to move in the other direction. This isn't like standing on a stage and moving from one side to the other, where if I decide to stop moving, I just stop. No, this is more like swimming. If you stop swimming, you start sinking. Maybe a less alarming example would be the idea of pushing a ball up a hill. If you stop pushing it up, it will start rolling down. There's a phrase that you've probably heard. It gets used a lot in business and all sorts of leadership stuff, but I think it really applies to this situation. This is the idea of design or default. This is the idea that there is an external pressure being applied, and without you realizing it, it will push you in a certain direction unless you actively go against it. It could be like a current in a river or a lake. It could be like gravity. I'm sure we can think of lots of examples. But it means this. If we are not getting closer to God, we are getting further away. How about a quick example? Let's do a little survey. According to the Bible, according to the Bible, when is sex between consenting unmarried adults permissible? Even if they're committed to each other. Always, sometimes, rarely, never. The answer is never, right? According to the Bible, the answer is never. We've talked about this a couple times in the past 12 months, and there's plenty in the Bible to teach us that God says that sex is for marriage. According to Pew Research, do you know how many American Christians gave that answer? Never? 32%. Left, right, neither of them did. Right? Like, look to your left, look to your right. Neither of the people sitting on either side of you. But you did, because you're a good Christian. That same survey found that half of those who identify as American Christians said that casual sex, never mind unmarried committed relationships, half of American Christians said that casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable. That's alarming, and a pretty obvious example of Christians being influenced by the culture around them. But here's an interesting bit of data that came from that question. So, framing, right? Casual sex, 50% of Christians say sure. Among the religiously unaffiliated, so like the broader culture, right? That number is 84%. But they also have data based on those who attend church regularly versus those who don't and how they answered this question. Now, the first concerning point is, do you know how often you need to be attending church in order to be considered regular by these studies? Once a month. That's it. Once a month makes you a regular church attender. That's how low our church attendance is culturally. How's that for a low bar? But secondly, looking at the actual data, if you filter for church attendance just once a month, people who are attending church once or more a month, the difference is huge. Among those who don't attend, 75% were positive toward casual hookups. It's pretty close to the culture at large. Among those who attend at least once a month, 35%. It's a huge drop-off. Now, I mean, that's still concerningly high, right? Considering the answer is supposed to be zero, it's still concerningly high, but that's a huge drop. 
And it says something important about the impact of Christian community and having an effect on living and believing differently. So not only is becoming more like Jesus something that we have to actively choose to engage with, we are faced with pressure in the opposite direction constantly. We've talked about a lot of reasons why Christians don't seem to live any differently. Mostly it comes down to not actually being in a relationship with Him. And I don't mean you're not saved. I mean that we go through the motions, but we don't actually do the work of engaging with God. And if we don't, then why would we expect our lives to be any different? In summary, we have gone outside without a jacket and then wondered why we're cold. But what happens when Christians do put in the work? What happens when Christians read their Bible, when they go to church, when they pray, when they seriously and enthusiastically work at being in a relationship with God? Something amazing happens. And I want to be clear that I am not going to preach at you now. I'm not going to use Bible verses to make this point. This is pure data. The Center for Bible Engagement did a scientific study, like a survey, called the Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. They studied American adults, and they controlled for all sorts of factors in order to filter the trends of the general population and compare them, not against those who identify as Christians, but against those who read their Bibles four or more days a week. Do you know what happens to all those stats that people like to bring up that say that Christians are the same as everyone else when you filter for people who read their Bibles most days of the week? They crater. They all crater. The rates just plummet. It turns out that reading your Bible makes a huge difference. I'll give you some summary stats from the study because this isn't that kind of lecture. But to summarize, people who read their Bibles four or more days a week are 228% more likely to share their faith with others. They're 231% more likely to be discipling someone. They're 60% less likely to be feeling spiritually stagnant. They're 59% less likely to be viewing pornography regularly. They're 57% less likely to be getting drunk. They're 68% less likely to be having sex outside of marriage. They're 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. They're 31% less likely to struggle with forgiving others. They're 416% more likely to be giving financially to their church. And they're 218% more likely to give financially to causes other than their church. Across all sorts of metrics, people who are praying, attending church, and especially reading their Bibles are vastly different than the population around them, which means something amazing. When we ask, why don't Christians live differently, it turns out that the answer is, they do. Christians who are actually taking their faith seriously are living lives that are transformed and spirit-empowered and looking more and more like Jesus. And this means that when we read our Bibles, we actually are engaging with the creator of the universe who loves us and who wants to be in relationship with us. We are meeting with and hearing from God, and it is making a difference in our lives. It means that when we read verses like 2 Corinthians 3.18, 
and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we read verses like that, we can be confident that the Bible is actually telling the truth. So be encouraged. Know that your spiritual disciplines are making a difference. And if you find yourself thinking that you need to up your game, then that's good news too, because God is gracious and compassionate. He gives wisdom to all who ask. He is ready, and He is waiting for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the power of Your Word, that when we read this book, we are meeting with You, and it transforms lives. Lord, we know that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing between bone and marrow, and soul and spirit. Lord, I pray that we would follow you this week, that we wouldn't simply call ourselves Christians, but that we would do the work, that we would actually follow you, that we would read, that we would pray, that we would worship both privately and with our lives. Help us to remember, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.